Episode 211 of the Bowery Boys, Madame Ristel, the abortionist of Fifth Avenue. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we present a truly notorious tale of New York City history about the person dubbed the wickedest woman in New York. This is the story of Madame Ristel. In January of 1878, a well-dressed man knocked on the door of the mansion at the northeast corner of Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street. He was led into the basement, into an office, where a woman in her 60s sat down with him. He told a tender and very familiar story. He and his wife were in a delicate situation. She was pregnant, but the family was already too large. Couldn't this lady help him out? Couldn't she sell him some medicine to help make this particular female problem disappear? This was indeed a familiar story for Madame Ristel, who patiently listened. And yes, she said, she could help him out, but of course, he'd have to pay for it. Unfortunately for Madame Ristel, this man wasn't who he pretended to be. He had a secret of his own that would ultimately threaten her business and her life. But who was Madame Ristel? And what did she represent in the second half of the 19th century when... Everybody in town, nearly everybody, knew her name. So join us as we explore the dramatic tale of Madame Ristel, the notorious abortionist of Fifth Avenue. All right, Greg, before we just dive into this rather dramatic and infamous tale to 19th century New Yorkers, Uh, Why don't you situate us a little bit in terms of this story, in terms of Madame Ristel? Mm -hmm. Where did she come from? Well, before we get to that, uh, I did want to say that we had some unique help on this particular show. It's not every episode that we actually get to talk with an author who is in the process of writing a book about this particular subject. So in this case, Professor Nick Surrett is actually writing a book about Madame Ristel. So we were able to kind of work in concert with him in pulling together our notes for this show. And at the end of this show, Mm -hmm. we'll actually bring him into the conversation itself. Yes, we're going to go meet up with him in Midtown and sit down with him and talk about the final chapter of Madame Ristel's life and really what her legacy is, because this is obviously a tale that is still very relevant to us in the 21st century. But first, you and I will be talking about her story. Mm-hmm. Um, so so who is Madame Ristel? Where did she come from? Well, I think before introducing the madam here, I actually want to give an overview of health services in the era in which she emerges in our story, which is the 1830s, because it's, a, needless to say, compared to today, a completely different world. There were very few medical schools, very few standardized practices of medicine. Right, and a city that is rapidly growing and having all kinds of urgent health needs. Yes. Yeah. By the start of the 19th century, there were only a handful of medical schools in the United States, teaching only a fraction of what we know about human health, much less women's health. In the 1830s, which is where we're going to start our story here, there was even a movement that was referred to as the popular health movement. 
by this time, there had been some states that had licensed medical practices, mm-hmm. but this was sort of a, an interesting pushback in history. So even by the 1830s, you had some states abolishing laws that had licensed doctors. But then but what did they have? If, if you couldn't go to a licensed doctor, who else was there to go to to seek medical help? Well, if there was not a regular doctor, there uh-huh. were indeed a sort of strata of practitioners called irregular doctors. These were lay practitioners, meaning that they were self-taught, and they were often women. Which I'm assuming was not the case with regular doctors. Oh, no. They were usually men of status. Right. Then it would be no surprise that most of their services would be provided to the upper class, whereas irregular doctors often advertised in newspapers into the early penny press and were key to New York health in the early days because of the huge groups of immigrants that would come into New York beginning in the late 1830s. So these irregular doctors, they could treat a wide range of ailments and medical conditions, and I'm assuming that included then pregnancy. Right. Now, on the one hand, because these irregular doctors were often women, they, you know, I mean, this is generally speaking, would sometimes offer better understanding of particular women's issues versus perhaps a male doctor of a certain status. Now, on the other hand, however, these irregular doctors, there were... No real ethical guidelines in practicing medicine. I mean, they were practicing medicine, but there was no guarantee that they were actually competent. So into the There was no Yelp at the time. You couldn't (laughs) look up reviews and see, I guess it was word of mouth. It was all word of mouth. And again, one thing I'm struck with uh, in this story is how much classified ads were so important for Uh the kinds of stories that we're about to tell. And that's where a lot of people got information back then. Now, into this fray, imagine a procedure as ethically fraught as the termination of a pregnancy. It's interesting how previous generations, how they thought of abortion practices in almost completely different terms than the ones that we have today. How, how so? Well, at the beginning of the 19th century, abortion was legal. But wait, how was abortion even defined in this period? It was centered around the idea of quickening. What's a quickening? Well, to read from a quote that I found from a 2004 scientific paper, quote, A quickening represented the time at which the fetus was, quote, vivified, defined as the time at which it was ensouled. So essentially, it's the first movement of a fetus in the womb. And when would that happen? So that's around the third or fourth month, right? So once that happens, that is the quickening. And that is really key to the early laws of abortion. By 1830, several state laws outlawed terminations of pregnancies after the quickening, but before it was perfectly legal back then. So for these first three months or four months before the quickening, it was permitted by law to terminate the pregnancy. That's right. Now, it's this is not to say that it wasn't frowned upon, for this was a procedure that was associated with disreputable women. Because usually it meant that this was happening to a woman because of something out of wedlock. Even prostitutes would request abortions at this time. But certainly there were other people who were seeking to 
for whatever reason, not carry a baby to term. There would be, and also in the 1830s, there were families that had already grown too large. There were people struggling financially. They didn't have the financial wherewithal to take on another child. That is true, but the procedure itself was still seen as the result of a sin that that person had committed. So when did they pass this law about the quickening that made it illegal to have a, an abortion after the, the fourth month or so? Well, in New York State, the year was 1828. So basically, any attempt to prescribe a substance which would cause an abortion before the quickening, so in those first couple months, that was a misdemeanor. So it was basically equivalent to just disorderly conduct. But any attempt after the quickening, so any time after the fourth month, that would be second-degree manslaughter. Laws would get more and more restrictive throughout the 19th century. Which we'll get to later in the show. Uh, but you mentioned in this law that pills or medicines that were prescribed to help terminate the pregnancy. So these pregnancies were being terminated by medicines and by powders? Yes, by powders, potions, and pills. But they, they didn't really have an abortion pill. I mean, what were these people taking? Because I'm assuming that, medic that medicine wasn't terribly advanced. No, no, it wasn't specific, let's just say. They called these pills abortifacents. Sometimes in the press, you'd see them as preventative powders. They were essentially herbs of different kinds that would cause miscarriages before the quickening. They would, of course, cause a lot of other things because these were quite powerful potions and it, something else in your body might also change as a result of this. So women were taking pills and powders that were basically poisoning themselves um, in order yeah. to have a miscarriage. Yeah. Now, as a result of these laws, these newspaper ads in which practitioners would offer their services, they would often be very thinly veiled. I would now like to read a clip from the New York Morning Herald from June 21st, 1839, for it's going to introduce our protagonist here. The headline, Another New Move in Philosophy, A Beautiful Female Physician. Some time ago, we gave the curious account of a lady called Mrs. Restell, living at Greenwich Street, who practiced medicine and professed to understand and regulate all the mysteries of life, death, creation, and resurrection. Ms. Restell herself appears, from her writings and her conversation, to be a woman of great scientific requirements, of remarkable knowledge and medical science, and withal beautiful, accomplished, and ladylike in her manners and deportment, unquote. So you wouldn't know from that that you're talking about someone who was practicing in women's health and specifically in providing medicines that caused miscarriages. Although I suppose if you're somebody who's in the market for those kinds of services, mm -hmm. you are able to read into that. Sure. I mean, a lot of vices of the mid-19th century often had coded language and printed in the newspaper. And so these irregular doctors, mm -hmm. like Madame Restell, who's offering the service, they had to code it in this way because it was not quite legal. You couldn't just go right out and say what you were advertising based on both the morality of the day, the decorum of the day, and also because of the fraught legal 
position that uh, these procedures were in. Tom, I believe you and I read in the book Gotham that 20% of all pregnancies were terminated in this fashion. Right, by, by the late 1850s. So even though it's not quite legal, thousands upon thousands of New Yorkers are having abortions. And many of those because of Madame Ristel. But who was Madame Ristel? Well, I should begin by saying that that's not her real name. Okay, what was her real name? Her, her real name was Anne Lohman. Uh, that she changed her name because these irregular doctors often took on fancier pseudonyms uh-huh. that with French overtones to make them more appealing and also to disguise their identity. Well, right, Ms. protect their family. And also, yeah. I guess if it's French and it's sort of about the body, it seems like she'd be more experienced about yeah, these things. of course. Well, Ms. Loban was born in England in 1812 and immigrated to New York in 1831. She was 19 years old and she came here with her husband, The couple had a daughter, but then shortly after that, her husband Henry died of yellow fever. Hmm. This made Anne a single mother on a seamstress's salary. In 1836, Anne met Charles Lohman. He was a printer for the New York Herald. And this is the 1830s, 1836. Mm-hmm. So so this is when the penny press is really starting to take off. Yeah. And this is James Gordon Bennett's newspaper. We've mentioned it many times in prior shows. Right. Now, Lohman was a philosopher and a radical free thinker. The couple actually traveled, moved around in intellectual circles in the city, circles that believed in things like free thought, the equality of sexes, basically the roots of what today we would call the free love movement, which wow. which sounds a lot racier than it actually was. We're going to have to put an explicit warning on this <laughs> podcast, Greg. <laughs> Well, through these circles, these free love circles, mm-hmm. the Lomans learned about these methods of birth control and medical practices of sexual health. So not just termination of pregnancy, but things like contraceptives and ways to prevent getting pregnant. In the first place. Mm-hmm. And that is indeed where she learned to develop and to obtain and then sell some of these abortion pills that would cause miscarriage before quickening. And, and she would make these pills and powders herself? Yes, in their Greenwich Street home. And these pills would sometimes include such poisons like foxglove and tansy, things that are we know today are very bad for the human body. And... If people didn't want to take those pills or Mm -hmm. were perhaps too far along to take those pills, then they would provide a physical procedure here at their Greenwich Street home. The Lomans went into business in 1839, advertising in newspapers, not just locally, but even in a mail order service across the United States. One advertisement, for instance, female pills, Mrs. Rastell, female physician, informs the ladies that her pills are an infallible regulator of, and then there'll be like a few dots, mm-hmm. meaning that would be for like menstruation. They would n- must not be used when dot, 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 dot. Like, y- like, like it was redacted or you had to read into you it. You had to read into it because that missing word was pregnancy. So prepared and sold only by herself. So Uh she did make them out of her Greenwich Village home. But she quickly became so successful at this that her potions, 
for pills were sold in various locations throughout the city. Well, there were, right, six different outlets in New York were selling her pills in the 1840s, and she was even affiliated with agencies outside of New York Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia and Boston and other places where you could buy these pills and seek similar services. She was so successful that she inspired knockoffs, other people with uh, similar French names selling other weird type of pills with such names as Portuguese female pills and lunar pills. Huh. You know, I mean, again, it's all so veiled. I mean, they sound like weird science fiction medicine. Uh-huh. Did other practitioners take on a similar, a similarly French-sounding name? Oh yeah, there was like a Madame Costello. There were all, there were actually a ton of different, like true knockoffs. Sometimes they would word for word take her advertisements and just reprint them in another part of the newspaper with their contact information. Well, that's kind of gutsy. <laughs> well, kind of sloppy. Yeah, very sloppy. Well, these other practitioners, they weren't as reliable. Actually, mm, they didn't and have the same standards. She no. was known through the 1840s and 50s and 60s as her business really thrived. She was known for providing a top rate service and she charged top rates mm-hmm. for it as well. Her main office would stay down here on Greenwich Street and then move over to Chambers Street, right by City Hall throughout the 1840s. And there she could sell her pills and offer the procedures. And she had plenty of room for women to stay uh, for their laying in if they were going to give birth. Um, Because another service that she provided that we haven't mentioned yet is that you could go off to Madame Restelle's, give birth, and then she could see that the baby was put up for adoption. So she offered a wide range of pregnancy-related services and was also a very savvy businesswoman because she was making money from all different sources here. In the case of the the women who would come in and then put up their babies for adoption, I mean, she was making money off of housing them, off of uh, the delivery itself, and then also off of the adoption process, and she would charge people to adopt the babies. I think that it's easy to look at this story and like apply a modern context and mm-hmm. think, oh, she's being so altruistic in, in many of these cases. But I think the bottom line in every single instance was profit. Yeah, because even though she had a sliding scale for her services, and she often throughout her career would charge wealthier clients much more, sometimes 10 times as much as she would charge poor clients, she was still making a lot of money. I saw that she would charge up to $100 uh, for a procedure, which in 1840 was about twenty-three dollars or $2,400. And the pills themselves were a dollar each. So these are expensive. A mm-hmm. dollar each in the 1840s is a lot of money. And she was open every day, long hours, 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. But 10 p.m., that is kind of late. Well, a lot of people, don't forget, didn't necessarily want to be seen heading into Madame Restelle's place because the neighbors were suspicious, especially over on Greenwich. Uh, They they thought something was going on here, right? And there were rumors circulating amongst them uh, about, you know, who were all of these women who were heading in? and, And surely something sinister was happening inside. So who were her clients in the 1840s? Well, there, you know, it was a wide range of people. As we touched on before, these were people who, for whatever reason, just didn't want or couldn't have a larger family. Children were expensive, and New York was an expensive city with small apartments, especially in the 1840s, as there are just boatloads of immigrants who are beginning to arrive. 
there, there were also people who were having affairs uh, who found themselves in a very unfortunate situation. And that was true of all walks of life. Yeah. People in all classes were having an affairs and found themselves in tricky situations. And then, like you mentioned before, there were prostitutes and sex workers. Prostitution throughout the 19th century and 20th, but certainly throughout the 19th century, was rampant in the city. And contraceptives pretty much didn't exist in most cases for, for people. They weren't available. Or they were extremely expensive. And brothels could be found all over town. Green Street in mm-hmm. Soho, which is today lined with trendy clothing stores and, and boutiques and upscale cafes, was actually the center of the red light district in this time. The, the whole stretch of Green Street from Canal up to 8th Street uh, was just lined with all kinds of brothels. And the farther you got uptown, the classier and more expensive they got. Mm-hmm. The ones closer to Canal Street were cheaper. And then if you really didn't have that much money, you, you could head down to the brothels near the seaport. There's a lot of sex and a lot of unwanted pregnancies in this period. So then it is no wonder that 20% of pregnancies resulted in abortions. So it sounds like business is pretty good for Restelle, at least for a while here, right? Business was, was great throughout the 1840s, but it wasn't necessarily easy because she would be taken to court a number of times in the decade. The first time in 1841, a young woman named Mary or Maria Purdy claimed on her deathbed that Madame Restelle had performed an abortion on her that went very wrong and that had resulted in severe illness. Uh, she was dying of tuberculosis. According to Purdy, she had become pregnant and she didn't wish to keep her child because she and her husband already had an infant son. So she visited Restelle in her office downtown. Restelle sold her medicine for a dollar pill, which she took for a couple of days. But then she didn't feel well at all, which was the intention, but she didn't feel like she could keep taking it. And she went to see her doctor, who, after inspecting it, totally forbade her from taking it. So she couldn't take the pills, but did she go ahead and attempt the abortion with Ristel? Well, she'd returned to Madame Ristel for surgery, which cost $20, which Purdy didn't have. And so she pawned off some possessions to Ristel, who accepted it. And she went ahead and performed the surgery. Afterwards, however, Purdy felt terribly ill, which she blamed on Madame Ristel. And Ristel was ultimately charged with selling poison and for provoking a miscarriage. That trial in 1841 was a sensation. It was covered in all the papers. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing for Madame Ristel. Oh, no, it's free advertising. Even though she was found guilty. She was found guilty and sent to the tombs on two minor charges. But then they successfully appealed it, and she was released. But the whole thing brought her fame, or infamy, or notoriety. And it brought her lots of new businesses, because she was now the go-to person for this kind of procedure. If this is what you were looking for, but didn't know what to look for in newspapers, now you had a name. But things were about to get much more difficult for her. The laws were getting more severe, right? Right. Well, there was a pressure now to really do something about this and and a sense that things had gotten out of control, both morally and also commercially. In May of 1845, a new abortion law was passed, and this was pushed through by doctors who had had enough. They they were sick of unlicensed, irregular Mm -hmm. doctors who were performing services that that they, the doctors, should have been doing. 
it was dangerous to the patients, but it was also taking away valuable business from the doctors themselves. They really didn't want all of these irregulars, many of whom were women, right. performing these medical procedures. And there was also a new medical consensus forming that life started not at the quickening, not at three or four months, but rather at conception, so that the abortion procedure should be reclassified as murder. And as such, according to this new law that was passed in 1845, it would be punishable for four to seven years in a state prison for the practitioner, and notably for the first time as well, the mother too would be found guilty and could spend up to a year in jail and be fined $1,000 for having an abortion performed upon her. So this is definitely a harsh escalation to both punish the people performing and the people receiving these procedures. Which isn't to say that it stopped people necessarily because that law was passed in 1845 and business would continue to thrive for decades mm-hmm. for Madame Restelle. I just want to briefly mention another trial, a big trial for Madame Restelle in 1847. It didn't quite go the way that she was hoping for. And, and this trial was, was the subject of the book Scandalous Lady, The Life and Times of Madame Restelle by Alan Keller mm-hmm. that I read last week. And it concerns um, Maria Bodine, who was a young woman and a domestic worker who had traveled down to New York from upstate to seek an abortion. She visited Madame Restelle, and she explained to her that she was pregnant with her boss's child. Now, in the ensuing trial, she was put on the stand and, and forced to tell the entire story about her, her whole experience, how she had gone to Restelle for services, how Madame Restelle had initially rejected the offer, saying she was too far along, uh, that Bodine was too far along with the pregnancy. But it was only at M- Mary's insistence uh, that Restelle finally agreed to go ahead and after they bargained over the price and negotiated, Ristel induced a miscarriage and caused Bodine incredible pain. And she stayed there and recovered slightly. And then she headed back home, um, at which point, because she was in such pain and so sick, she was forced to see a doctor who, upon examining her, realized that this woman had just had an illegal abortion. And Bodine was forced to tell the entire story leading to the authorities sweeping in and arresting Ristel. And all this was captured in the newspapers Oh, of the this day? Was, this wow. was a, a huge sensation. The, the courtroom was packed. And as Keller points out in the book, the male jurists and the readers of the press seem to be particularly interested in every lurid detail of the poor woman's story and every time she talked about her body in very graphic and frank terms. So there's a really sort of sick side to this whole story. Prurian side, yeah. was, Was that readers, largely a male readership, took a very keen interest in this, maybe for all the wrong reasons. So how did the jury decide? In the end, Ristel was was found guilty of a misdemeanor, and she was sentenced to one year on Blackwell's Island. But the story is far from over. We'll get to the rest of this intriguing and scandalous tale of the abortionist of Fifth Avenue after this commercial break. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So, Tom, how do you think Madame Restelle was treated on Blackwell's Island? Well, it wasn't probably a place that she wanted to be. Nobody really wants to be there as an inmate. But given the fact that she had already some experience paying off officials in the 1840s, Um, I'm guessing that she took the same strategy out of Blackwell's <laughs> Island. She did indeed. She was already a very wealthy woman by this time, by 1848. She was able to buy herself a little piece here. Indeed, inside the prison, she had a nice little feather bed, which the other inmates did not have. Mm, and she was given not. No, and she was given a nightlight, too, so she could read at night. A nightlight? <laughs> a nightlight? I know, that's, that seems extravagant. What was an 1850s nightlight even like? I mean, <laughs> well, well, I guess it was a gas lamp or something. It was a something. gas lamp. She was, I don't think that they were allowed gas lamps like at night okay. in this place. Indeed, once she was released after this year of staying at Blackwell's Island, she was able to maintain a certain insularity because of this wealth. So an amazing thing happens. After she is released from Blackwell's Island in 1849, she is essentially left alone. So all these legal problems that she'd had in the 1840s, she does not have the same kinds of pressure in the 1850s and 1860s. And left alone because she's paying off the police? Well, there's a few reasons while she's given a certain kind of autonomy. One of them is, of course, money. But another reason is that client list, which now by the 1850s includes a sizable number of people from the social register. You know, this is now a period of the dance hall. So there's many people of different classes now that are her clients. So she has a lot of information, but she is clearly providing a service that more and more New Yorkers are coming to find out that they really need here. And because of this roster of clients, she finds herself in a position of power. Oh, sure. I mean, to look at this in a more sinister fashion, she has this list of important people and can use it as a veiled threat. If anything happens to her, she could expose city leaders with her registry here. So all these different things only add to her notoriety. It's easy to see why people called her the most wickedest woman in New York City at this period. So she's increasingly wealthy, but she's not well-loved. Oh, no. I mean, in the press, they call her such extraordinary names like Madame Killer and the She-Devil. Religious leaders were decrying her 
from the pulpit. But there's also something rather exalted in her position in society. She was friends with a lot of important men of the period. She and her husband were moving around the edges of high society, not Hmm. in high society. In 1853, Mayor Westervelt even officiated over the marriage of her daughter. Wow, that's a big deal. That's kind of surprising that this woman who's being referred to as a killer... Mm-hmm. And Wicked is also hobnobbing with the mayor. How does that work? I mean, I don't know if she had something over on him or it was that, she, again, she's, she's a very wealthy person. And sometimes you can buy respect. In fact, in the 1860s, many believed she had deals with Tammany Hall and with Boss Tweed, who basically left her alone for his entire reign over corrupt New York politics. So all of these things add up to her being largely left alone in the 1850s and 60s, Mm -hmm. allowed to run her business and to perform thousands of abortions, even though they were now illegal. Mm -hmm. She was so emboldened during this period, Tom, that in 1857, she and her husband managed to purchase a plot of land in a quite shocking location, the northeastern corner of Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street. What's so shocking about that? It seems like this is where everybody with money was building their mansions. That's true, except that on the south side of the street was a construction site. For this is where they were building St. Patrick's Cathedral. Oh. So for for much of the rest of the story here, they are continuing to construct this because it would take, of course, many decades. And it was slowed down during the Civil War. Now, most believe that Ristel and her husband chose this location on purpose. For, of course, the church condemned the Lomans here. So this was a little bit of like snubbing their nose at mm. the church. But if she's so notorious and, uh, you know, New York's high society families are, are building these mansions mm-hmm. all around her. Well, I can't imagine that New York's high society families were especially thrilled either no. that she was living amongst them. In a way, it's like she salted the earth around her property for those property owners who did live or who did own adjacent lots attempted to kick them out to no avail. Kick out Ristel. Yes, because they were conducting business in this very building. So, so they weren't just living there. This was also their medical facility. Yeah, this was their offices as well. This was everything. Now, she had built herself an island of wealth here. But she was completely ostracized from high society, and yet, in this very clandestine manner, was a tool of high society. To quote from Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper, which we do like, in describing uh, her little palace here on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street, there she has seated herself in all the splendor of wealth, her great palace frowning down upon the street, while inside, madam sits a pariah, amid velvets, satin, and rosewood, mirrors and bronzes, and longs for the sympathy and respect that all her wealth cannot buy, even in this city, where we are told it can buy anything. Wow. So even if you build the most ostentatious structure on Fifth Avenue, you still can't buy respect. Money can't buy you class, Tom. An even more intriguing quote comes from 1869, another observer who wrote about this infamous brownstone, quote, 
Whenever I pass it, it seems to cast a deeper shadow than any other house, and a sense of chilliness, such as comes from open vaults in the graveyard, seems to steal from its grim doorways and windows hung with showy curtains, which shut in what few of us dare to believe and none of us care to see. But again, she wasn't alone. An 1868 study found that there were 200 abortionists still working in New York City. So even with these restrictive laws in place, people were still having the procedure done. And most of these places were a lot more dangerous for those who sought their services. There was a story of the infamous Jason Rosenzweig, who was called the Fiend of Second Avenue, who had abortion houses throughout Manhattan and was linked to a series of deaths. The laws were becoming more restrictive in all manner of vices. How so? Well, let me embody this particular movement that's about to happen in the form of one gentleman named Anthony Comstock, who was pivotal to life in the 1870s. I would also call him the ultimate buzzkill of old New York. He had a he had a thing for fighting vice. Oh yes, he was the anti-vice king. He was born in 1840 in Connecticut, and before the age of 30, he managed to lead a bandwagon of morality reformers and create the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice in 1873. The suppression of vice of all kinds of vice, all manner. All vice, and these laws were very, very far-reaching and long-lasting. Perhaps his greatest legacy is the Comstock Law, which passed in 1873. This was a federal law that outlawed the mailing of lewd printed materials, or Mm -hmm. basically the delivery of anything like abortifacents, so basically all of Ristel's business, pornography, contraceptives. But the thing about it is that these were defined extremely broadly. And it was up to Comstock himself to choose what was morally unacceptable. He was actually made a postal agent to enforce this very law, which is kind of surprising. To, you could say, give his stamp of disapproval. (laughs) If you will. Even with these laws, though, he still could not stop Rustel, at least during the early 1870s. Why? She was just still so insulated by people who she had as former clients. She was still incredibly wealthy and still quite powerful. It was only with the death of her husband, Charles, in 1876, that perhaps made Rustel vulnerable. You know, so due the, to the nature of society at this period, he was able to maneuver through places that she was not able to go. Mm-hmm. Like, he was able to have meetings with certain men. I, I, he was, I believe, the one who negotiated the purchase of the land to begin with, where the Fifth Avenue house sat. So with him gone, this may have opened up the proverbial door to her brownstone and opened it up to Comstock, who then took a very specific and special interest in bringing her down. Well, Greg, you'll recall at the very beginning of the show, we mentioned a man who knocked on the front door of this mansion on Fifth Avenue. Well, that man was, unfortunately for Madame Restell, Anthony Comstock, disguised this late evening as a husband who was seeking some remedy for his wife who was pregnant. Well, Greg and I recently sat down 
to speak with an expert on the subject, Nick Surretz. Nick is an associate professor of history at the University of Northern Colorado. Nick is currently working on a book about Madame Bristel. And so and so Nick here will pick up the story of Comstock's visit to Bristel's home. So on January 28th of 1878, Anthony Comstock comes to visit her disguised as a married man uh, looking for uh, female monthly pills, and he buys them from Madame Rastel. And she receives him at her mansion? Yes, she receives him in the office of her mansion, which is in the basement. Um, He comes back about a week later on the 7th of February, and he buys more pills from her, this time saying that they are for a single woman. And he alleges that she then explains, oh, to prevent conception, perhaps for something else as well. She sells them again. As if she's complicit with with abortion, yes. Um, And then he comes back with police officers on the 11th, so four days after that, and that is when she is arrested. And this was actually Comstock... So I guess this he was wasn't the real. This was him. Yes. So how did did she not recognize him? Was he not a prominent figure at this time? I guess maybe because they seem like they were question. both pretty prominent yes. figures. Fake mustache. He may have actually been wearing some sort of disguise. Um, but bear in mind also this is a time before everyone is necessarily represented uh, by photographs. So there, are what we have of her are mostly sort of line drawings in in newspapers. And those that are line drawings of her of her looking rather wicked and devilish, so you wouldn't even really know, I guess. Yeah. So the other thing to know, though, is that one of the reasons it may have been Comstock is that while these laws were fierce and draconian and strict, the federal government did not actually give him an enormous staff in order to be able to prosecute all of the crimes that he wanted to prosecute. So he actually did do a lot of this work himself. He did have police officers that he could call upon to enforce some of the laws. It's like he was running his own vice squad. Basically, yes. So what happens next? She's going to be arraigned. She's going to go to trial. And she fears at this point that this is the final one and she's going to go to jail for a long time. Because she's been on trial before. And she's been in jail before. Right. So she, at this point, thinks that the jig is up and that she's finally going to be prosecuted and found guilty and go to jail. Her husband has died the year before. She, according to her relatives and servants, is increasingly paranoid about everything that's going on. And it's Comstock. And Comstock had had some success in jailing other abortionists and other purveyors of erotica and pornography and contraception and so forth. So she's also 67 years old at this point. Her family's a little bit falling apart. So it's April 1st, and she is due in court uh, to, to sort of attest to these charges. To deny them, yes. To, to, yes. So what happens that day? Well, her maid gets up and passes by Madame's room and sees that uh, Madame is in the bath um, because her clothing is, is also in the bathroom. But, so the maid goes downstairs and has her breakfast and then goes up to the bedroom to see uh, if she can a- attend to her mistress. And she's not there. And then she goes into the bathroom. And that's when she finds her mistress, Madame Restel, submerged nude in the bathtub. And she has slit her own throat. Did people consider that it might have been foul play and not suicide? Yes, there was an investigation, and it was determined in part based on who had access to the home um, that it was suicide, that she must have done this to herself. Did she leave a note? She did not leave a note. She did, however, dress in all of her diamonds before taking her own life. 
So this must have created a sensation in the press. An enormous sensation, yes. She was the most famous law-breaking abortionist in the city, if not in the entire country. And it appeared that Anthony Comstock had finally nabbed her. She had met her match, and instead of facing him, she took her own life. It was a cause celeb. Were there theories about why she chose suicide? I think that her family believed it was that she was sort of increasingly mentally unstable because she she said, for instance, repeatedly, why are they persecuting me? Why are they persecuting me? Um, the answer, of course, is because she was breaking the law, but she'd been doing this for so long and she felt that they were getting increasingly sort of diligent about pursuing her. But did anything change immediately after her death, at least for women who were seeking birth control at this period of time? It appears that there were far, like, there were fewer and fewer advertisements in newspapers in the immediate wake of her death and that they were much less, ex- I mean, not that they'd ever been fully explicit, but much less explicit than they had been before. But we do know that abortion and the availability of birth control all continued on unabated just illegal and on a black market. And at least by the later 19th century, there are new forms of birth control increasingly available. So could it be said that Comstock's high profile chasing after Madame Ristel pushed the abortion scene farther underground? Yes, I think that would be fair to say. And made it more dangerous. And made it more dangerous, yes. So there's lots of evidence that there still were doctors who were performing abortions in all of the period in which abortion was technically illegal, but there were also all kinds of other people who were not very qualified to perform abortions who were performing them. And the Comstock laws, which last in one form or another, and it varies depending on what's being enforced through the 19-teens and really into the 1960s and 1970s, they clearly stifled discussion of sex, discussion of contraception, and indeed abortion itself. Was the church involved in the conversation about abortion at that time? Did she, because she seemed amoral for other reasons and openly sort of embraced prostitution, did she kind of encourage the injection of morality into this conversation? Yes, I think to a degree she did. It bears noting that First of all, abortion was fully legal when the United States was just a set of colonies much more religious than it was by the later 19th century. So the church didn't have an official position. Even the Catholic Church was a bit wishy-washy on abortion for many years. So I think by the press sort of representing her as evil incarnate, it became much easier for the church to take an official position condemning abortion. I do think, though, we should also bear in mind that one of the reasons that the church and religious people more generally were so opposed to abortion was because they believed that it really was the end to the prior sin, which was sex outside of pregnancy for those who were unmarried. So it represented sort of lust gone amok and the ability of married or single men to have their way with women, and then this is the solution that hides it all. Is there any reason you think that she's not really known today? I I think that most people don't know the name Madame Ristel. Is that a byproduct of time marching on? Or is there some other reason? Right. I think, well, one, probably partially time moving on, but I think it's also, like, she is not a remarkably sympathetic figure. She is a really fascinating figure, but I don't think that um, necessarily people would choose to write about her in a way that portrays her in a way that is sympathetic. So it may just be that people have chosen not to, to write about her. 
And I think even those who are really sympathetic would find it difficult to resurrect her as a feminist icon for women's rights. That is, she certainly did provide a service that many women needed, but she was also mercenary, gained an enormous amount of money in the process, and sounded like a pretty dis- you know, unlikable person in the process. So was she, so is she a feminist? I mean, the word didn't exist at the time, so it's difficult to sort of retroactively use it. And I'm not sure I would say that. I think in the end, she was someone who saw an opportunity um, and she uh, made a name and money for herself in one of the few professions that was open to women. And So those who were early feminists, let's say, or fighting for women's rights, right. how would they have interacted with her or have seen her? Many of the early women's rights activists were vehemently opposed to abortion, not for totally the same reasons that people might be today, but because they thought that abortion was a way of allowing for men's sexual excess. That is, men could do what they wanted, and it perpetuated the double standard because here was the out. Men could then just pressure their paramours, their lovers, in order to have abortions. And so they thought that it perpetuated the double standard, and they were opposed to the double standard. So when do they roll back any of these uh, laws, the Comstock laws? So the last of the Comstock laws is not really overturned until 1965 in Griswold versus Connecticut, where uh, contraception between married people becomes legal. And then seven years later in Eisenstadt v. Baird in 1972, where contraception between single consenting adults is made legal. Prior to that, some forms of contraception were made legal in the 1930s via Margaret Sanger, as long as prescribed by a doctor. And this varies by state. Um, But the obscenity stuff lives on into the 1950s um, when the Supreme Court finally deals with it then. So just sort of a discussion of these things. And then obviously abortion. Um, New York makes abortion uh, legal in 1970. And then nationally, obviously, it's 1973 with Roe v. Wade. So you're working on an upcoming book on the subject of Madame Rostel. Yes, I'm beginning research on what will be my next book, a sort of life and times of Madame Rostel. Your current book is almost out. Yes, my uh, second book will be published in the fall, and it's a history of uh, young people and marriage in the United States. It's called American Child Bride, A History of Minors and Marriage in the United States. And it's being published by the University of North Carolina Press. So we would like to thank Nick Surrett for joining us there on the final chapter and legacy of Madame Ristel. Please visit our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have images from newspapers of the day of how Madame Ristel was depicted. Join us as well on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. And of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't take this opportunity to mention the book. Yes, The Adventures in Old New York actually mentions the spot where Madame Ristel's house was located in Midtown, right next to St. Patrick's Cathedral. So that fact and hundreds of others are included in here that our historical guidebook through Old New York. So you can get our book, Adventures in Old New York, wherever books are sold, as well as Amazon and Barnes & Noble. We'd also like to thank our friends at the General Society of Mechanics and Tradesmen on West 44th Street for allowing us to record in their fantastic library. 
And a huge thanks to our patrons uh, who are supporting us with small monthly contributions that have made it possible for Greg and I to double the output of the show. We wouldn't be able to do this without your support. If you'd like to join in the hundreds of others who have already done so, please visit Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys where you can sign up and read about all the extras that are offered to you as a Patreon supporter. Including an extended interview with Nick Surrett about Madame Ristel, because it's actually quite fascinating. Right. We only were able to use a small part for the show. Right. But we'll we spoke you, with him for 45 minutes. Yeah, we'll give you the whole, the whole thing. I think you'll find it really interesting. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.